Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey everyone. Before we get into this episode, just a heads up that it's about war. It's intense. We talk about violence, about killing, about PTSD, about a lot. Be aware of that when you listen. Another note, the Vietnam War is extremely complex. There were millions of people of very different identities who were impacted in horrific ways. I'm going to be telling the stories of two veterans of the United States military. Their stories are by no means representative of the whole conflict. To learn about some of the other lives impacted by the war, I'd like to recommend two novels I read while researching for this episode. The Sympathizer by Vietnamese-American author Viet Thanh Nguyen and Rue by Vietnamese-born Canadian author Kim Thuy. Let's get started. How far are you willing to go to protect something you love? The Vietnam War was a series of escalating events caused by different groups trying to protect their own interests. The Vietnamese people just wanted to protect their independence. The Chinese and the Russians wanted to protect communism. The United States wanted to protect the world from communism, at least at first. By the end, the United States really just wanted to protect its own ego. I had a great deal of respect for the military. Today, we're going to learn about the destruction of the Vietnam War. Uh, my name is David Balding. I am Janet Allen's uh, brother. Uh, I am Daryl Allen's brother-in-law through their marriage. This is David. He fought in Vietnam. And because he and Janet grew up in a military family, when David was young, he idolized the forces. We were of the, the next generation just following World War II. So, you know, the, these guys had done an impressive job, and they, you know, they came home and they, they built a nation. No matter how critical you might be of military operations, World War II is one of those moments in history when we're all pretty happy that the Allies had big armies ready to fight. World War II presented one of the most clear-cut good versus evil stories in history. It's easy to look back and know who were the heroes and who were the villains. Vietnam would prove to be different. Well, I was a smartass. I thought I knew everything. I didn't listen to my father. I couldn't be defeated. I figured that I could go into the Marine Corps. I could learn whatever specialty they gave me and that I could do anything they threw my way. At 18 years old, 18 years old, in 1969, David enlisted in the Marine Corps. I felt, I felt pretty, uh, pretty prepared. Uh, I also at the time believed in the Vietnam War. I was raised to believe that the U.S. government was truthful. But... By the time David returned home from his 13-month tour in Vietnam, his mind had changed. 
Well, the night I landed, my parents met me, Janet and Daryl also. They, they met me and drove me home and told me that my best friend from high school had died in Vietnam. And I said, for the first time in front of my mother, I cursed. I said, I hate that fucking place. And I fell apart, and I think I probably had a couple of drinks. He would have more drinks in the years to come. And the American public didn't want to hear about the experiences of Vietnam War veterans, so a lot of them bottled them up inside. It would take 45 years before David sought help. It was actually through my sister's actions and the sheriff department, they got me to the VA and into a uh, rehab program, uh, which then led to um, pretty extensive therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder and addressing uh, physical conditions that were caused by my exposure to Agent Orange in Vietnam. The trauma that many Vietnam veterans kept silent inside themselves. Daryl Allen had it too. We're going to hear a bit more about Daryl's experiences in Vietnam now. And he had changed. That's Janet, Daryl's ex-wife. When he came back from Vietnam, or Thailand, from that whole war experience, he was... um, he was even more fragmented, if that's the right word. Um, a little more volatile, a little more um, moody. Daryl's struggles are in his writing, too. He held a deep, deep darkness inside himself. Many characters from his plays have dark sides. They struggle with trauma. I found a passage from one of his plays that really reflects this. One of Daryl's characters, Gil, had climbed a snowy mountain in Washington. Near the top of the mountain, Gil stands at the edge of an icy cliff, looking down at a river far below. I'll let Gil take it from here. It was treacherous. The sun was bright, the top snow melting. One false move and I'd fly. Fly to the river. I must have stood rooted for an hour, gazing down. Just move your foot a little. Just move your foot. No one would ever know. It was treacherous. It would have seemed like an accident. Gill's monologue, it was based off Daryl's own experience. He later wrote in a letter to Janet. That day on Mount Anderson that Gill describes as something hideous and a failure was really one of the most important good things I've ever achieved for myself. What happened on that icy cliff? That was real. The fact that I did not kill myself and struggled off the mountain to your house was perhaps one of the most important events in my life. And um, when he did finally come to my house, it was like he had been through something, but he never, he never really talked about it. But he really could have just laid down and died. Vietnam was not the only darkness that Daryl struggled with, but it was a big part of it. What I want to know is what happened in Vietnam. It changed Daryl, and it changed his brother-in-law, David. 
What happened that could drive a military brat into a decades-long struggle with PTSD? And what happened that could give Daryl the drive to write Mustang Zero One, a play about his time in Vietnam? A play that he spent more than a decade writing. A play that he wrote the final version of in 1991, the year he died. When he knew he was dying, he could have been working on any of his plays, but Mustang Zero One is the play he chose. In his dying days, that play, he wanted to tell that part of his story. This episode, this is what happened in Vietnam. The history of the Vietnam War is complicated, so let's do a quick history lesson. We got some history lesson music. Vietnam, a vibrant country at the eastern tip of Southeast Asia. Long coasts, jade green rice paddies, and thick, dense jungles. The French had a lot to gain when they chose to colonize Vietnam in the 19th century. The Vietnamese people were heavily oppressed by the French for decades. In the 1940s, a faction of the Vietnamese people led by a revolutionary named Ho Chi Minh began fighting for independence. But Ho Chi Minh, he was a communist. In 1954, Ho Chi Minh succeeded in liberating Vietnam from its French oppressors. But the country was in political turmoil, so it was divided in half, with Ho Chi Minh and his communist forces left in control of North Vietnam, while a U.S.-backed leader controlled South Vietnam. The country was supposed to have elections in 1955 to reunite the North and the South, but the elections never happened. As the years went by, communist forces from the North began ratcheting up military operations to take control of the South. And year by year, the United States slowly became more and more involved, out of a fear that Vietnam falling to the communists would start a domino effect, causing all of Southeast Asia to become communist. To those people, in the huts and villages of half the globe, struggling to break the bonds of mass misery, we pledge our best efforts to help them help themselves. For whatever period is required, not because the communists may be doing it, not because we seek their votes, but because it is... For years, The U.S. only had military advisors in Vietnam, guiding the southern government and training the military. They were never supposed to be involved in active combat. But the U.S. had vastly underestimated the Vietnamese people and had to increasingly add more and more military support to keep up. And so, my fellow Americans... Especially as Ho Chi Minh and the communists got their own support from China and the Soviet Union. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. In 1965, the U.S. deployed Marines to South Vietnam to help fight back against attacks by the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong, who were communist sympathizers living in the South. These were the first U.S. combat troops in the region. That same year, 1965, the U.S. Air Force launched Operation Rolling Thunder, an air bombing campaign in North Vietnam designed to destroy North Vietnamese infrastructure and boost morale in the South. In 1967, Daryl Allen would be deployed to assist with the U.S. Air Force's bombing of North Vietnam. In 1970, his brother-in-law, David, would be deployed as a Marine to assist with operations in the South. Here's David. My father was deployed to 
Vietnam when I was 14. This was in the early days of the conflict. We took him to the train station, um, you know, the hugs, the kisses, and so on. And when we got back, I came down with, a, with an extreme migraine headache. And those migraines would hit me about once a week for the entire two years that Daddy was gone. The last headache I had was the day before he came home, and I've not had one since. So, you know, what was that, stress, pressure? <laughs> Shortly after David's dad deployed, the family met Daryl. Daryl stepped up to become a kind of like a brother to me. I, I felt very comfortable with Daryl. I would spend uh, like uh, a night over at his place. He had a cabin on a on a lake uh, outside of Tacoma, and I would spend spend the night over with him. Daryl was twelve years older than David just old enough to be able to give good advice and just young enough to be able to really relate to David on his level. If I could read you, if I could know you. And during that time, we, we would talk a lot. And if I, had, I, if I had questions that a young 14, 15-year-old uh, would have and, you know, didn't feel comfortable talking to my mother about, I knew that I could go to Daryl. Once David's father was back from Vietnam, it was Daryl's turn to do his part for the war. He was deployed to Thailand with the Air Force. And David saw these men, these role models in his life, doing their duty, and he wanted to do his part too. I mean, I went into the Marine Corps two days after I graduated from high school, and I was, I was ready. I believed very strongly that every person should enlist and put their time in and I was disappointed that, the, that my country had to, had to use a draft. And while David's dad and Daryl had both been out of frontline combat themselves, David wanted to be right in the action. Can I ask why you wanted to be in a combat rather than a support role? I felt that it would prove me as a, as a man to my father, to my family, to my country. Um, I didn't want to just be... Uh, passing the beans and the bullets up to the front. I wanted to be up front. And so, in June of 1969, David Balding joined the Marines. So it starts with boot camp, which gives you basic expectations and, and training, the history of the Marine Corps, uh, basic rifle training, all of that stuff. Uh, from there, I went to uh, advanced infantry training, to uh, uh, operate uh, machine guns. November of 1969, I was transferred into what's called the Fleet Marine Force. That's where my training is done. I had been trained as a machine gunner. This was David's specialized training. So you, you trained as a machine gun, gunnist, gunner? What was the word? A machine gun user? Machine gunner, yes. Machine gunner. In a squad of like 15 people, there is one machine gun assigned. So think of it this way. You got some guys marching along in a, in a line. In the middle, you've got a machine gun so that if anything, if anybody attacks from any angle, the machine gun can deploy to protect the rest of them. 
So David got this specialized training in machine guns, and it all seemed pretty cool. Morale in, in at that time was still fairly high for everyone. There was the excitement. I mean, every day you get to you get to shoot off these weapons and throw these hand grenades and do all of this stuff. And the Marines liked David. They selected him for another type of specialized training for another type of weapon they used in the Vietnam War. They sent me to Lackland Air Force Base to train me as a dog handler. Dogs, which were trained to detect threats in Vietnam. So after his basic training and his advanced training in machine guns and dog handling, David was ready to deploy. From there, I was sent to Vietnam. Before heading to Vietnam, uh, who did you understand the enemy to be? Anybody that had a communist background was the enemy. Before David left for Vietnam, everything was clear. It was black and white. They needed to go away because they were going to take over the world. That was that was the belief and, and kind of my attitude. And as they got ready to ship out, everyone was amped. The Marines were all young, uh, for the most part, you know, young guys, first-timers. They're headed into excitement. You know, this is a great adventure. David and his fellow Marines fly into Da Nang in South Vietnam. It was green, where they hadn't sprayed the the, uh, the herbicides. It was it was green. It was lush. Uh, there were some rice paddies. Um, it was humid. The smell is hard to describe, but it's a combination of know, sweat and fish sauce and just all these different odors that we in the West are not used to. But I was used to it having been in, in Cambodia. David's family spent time in Cambodia when he and his sister Janet were teenagers. So when we get off the plane, all these guys are reacting to the smell, and I'm going, well, it's normal. I don't smell anything weird. But everybody else did. These kids had been training for nearly a year, and now they finally got to start their adventure. We arrived uh, just after sunset uh, into Da Nang. David and his buddies were amped up. They were in a new place, a new country, a new exotic landscape. But they were about to learn that Vietnam wasn't the adventure they expected. Probably the most shocking thing for me wasn't the odor, wasn't the humidity. Everything they'd been told about Vietnam, it was all a lie. And the shock hit immediately. Within half an hour of going from the plane into some temporary barracks where they were going to keep us overnight until until we deployed out to our units, uh, we started getting rocket attacks. Scares the living bejesus out of me. So in that event, like what happens when... Uh, when you start taking fire. Sirens go off. Uh, flares start uh, being dropped from aircraft and shot up from artillery. Um, you get into bunkers. Uh, you, you drop, you hug the ground, you just get down. And for the uh, 19 and 20-year-olds that had just come into country, we just kind of looked at each other like, oh, God, what did we do? What did we do? a question that would haunt so many from Vietnam. We're going to hear David's answer when we come back, right after this break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dane here. Thanks for listening. As a reminder, we're a fully independent podcast. Throughout the series, we're using some of our ad spots to promote organizations that are doing important work for queer people. These organizations didn't pay us, we just think they're cool. Today, I wanted to promote a local Montreal organization, AIDS Community Care Montreal, or ACCM. ACCM provides education for prevention, treatment information, and support services to Anglophone and Allophone communities. I volunteered with ACCM a few years ago, and they do some really cool work, like organizing community dinners and facilitating workshops in high schools on topics like HIV 101 and safer sex. The work ACCM does is really important in addressing local needs. They're really cool. You can learn more and support AIDS Community Care Montreal by visiting accmontreal.org donate. Okay, back to the show. For the, uh, the 19 and 20-year-olds that had just come in the country, we just kind of looked at each other like, oh God, what did we do? What did we do? It's the same question the United States would ask for years to come. Vietnam was not the adventure David thought it would be. He very quickly learned that all the specialized training he had, which seemed pretty cool at the time, it was a lot different on the ground. I did three different things. When I worked as a sentry dog handler, I walked around American bases and guarded perimeters. Get barbed wire and all this stuff. And the dogs are trying to sense people outside the wire, you know, bad guys. David's second job took him away from the base. I also did patrols with American and South Vietnamese combined infantry units. The Americans and the South Vietnamese Army worked closely together. These patrols would take David out into the countryside, working with his dog. Our dog teams were used as threat detection. We were looking for mines, booby traps, trip wires, people, um, anything out of the ordinary. And David had one other job. And then the third job that I did, we were actually with the civilians in their villages. We would go into villages with um, Navy corpsmen and Navy engineers, the idea being the corpsman would administer shots, teach kids how to brush their teeth, teach mama son how to use soap, all of that stuff. The engineers would help, um, you know, maybe help them, advise them on building uh, better rice paddy dikes or buildings or whatever. And then there would be a security unit protecting them. This was a major part of the strategy in Vietnam. 80% of the population of South Vietnam lived in villages. Only 20% was in the cities. The war would be won or lost depending on who these villagers supported. How, how did the civilians feel about you guys? If we were within, oh, I don't know, five, six miles of Da Nang, they were open to our help. Da Nang was one of the major cities in the South, an area that was pretty supportive of the Americans. 
but the further we got out, um, the less cooperative they were. Further away from the cities, there was less support of the American troops. Many of the villagers were Viet Cong. The Viet Cong were North Vietnamese sympathizers. Um, they, they were like militia. And adding to the confusion, Vietnamese troops from the north, called the NVA, were also infiltrating the south. By the time I got there, the NVA had come back down the Ho Chi Minh Trail and was all over Vietnam, um, oftentimes not in uniform, but they were still regular army. NVA stands for the North Vietnamese Army. When NVA soldiers were in plain clothes, it was nearly impossible to tell the difference between them and the villagers who weren't a threat. So you had this mix, and you couldn't really tell um, who was a good guy and who was a bad guy. I'm not sure there was a clear-cut good guy and bad guy in Vietnam. I can understand it from David's perspective, but with the lens of history, I find it hard to call a northern fighter bad for fighting in what his government, what his leaders, told him to believe in. After all, David was doing exactly the same thing. Does one become good and one bad just by virtue of where they were born? And it also sounded like the role that you had as a dog handler would have also put you in a position where you were, it seems like you would have been the first contact in a lot of these situations. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yes, you are. Um, because when I was on patrol, I would walk point and behind me would be what I called my shotgun, who would be a, an individual that would protect me so I could concentrate on reading the dog. David's role was threat detection. If the enemy was around, there was a good chance David would be the first encounter. That terrifies me. Searching for someone who wants to kill you. And so, David got the combat experience that he wanted, and it changed him. You had mentioned before that one of the things that started shifting your perspective on the war was uh, your first combat experience. It it was my first kill, and um, just seeing him lay there and realizing what I had done, um, all of a sudden, you begin to question the value of what you had just done, and all of a sudden, the world politics became less important and it really came to a head when I began to realize within a couple of months that all the farmer wanted to do was grow his rice and feed his family. He didn't give a damn who was in charge. And when you look at that And you'd look at a bombed-out village. You look at a person laying there messed up who just the day before you were drinking a beer with. Things change. Uh, It doesn't make any sense anymore. 
did you, <laughs> I don't know, what kind of relationship do you have with the, with the dog when you're a dog handler? Um, I had a total of five dogs when I was in country. Three of them were wounded or killed, and one of them went, uh, went gun-shy and had to be uh, destroyed. So I left, when I left country, I, I, I left with my, uh, uh, I left my last dog behind. But I, I had to have four or five replacements due to either action or the dog becoming ineffective. Uh, was that something that was difficult for you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I had to destroy two dogs myself because they were so badly wounded. And I'm guessing destroying means that you had to kill them yourself. Is that right? Yeah, I had, I had to. So when a dog would get injured, we would get in touch with our rear veterinary unit, and they would give us direction on either first aid or whatever. And, and on two occasions, I called them and they said to put the dog down, which meant I had to shoot them. And, and, and these are the things that, that people probably don't understand. And Daryl went through the same thing. We will never understand what he went through, and you'll never understand what I went through and so on. But it's, it's, it's very frustrating at times to talk about and to feel an appreciation for what others go through I got to say this, this is kind of a non sequitur, but I almost envy Daryl because his pain is over. I'm sorry, I got off on a tangent. But Daryl's pain ran deep too. The first time I read Daryl's play about his experience in the war, Mustang Zero One, I asked Dan Wiley about why Daryl wrote it. Dan is Daryl's ex-boyfriend. He's the man who gave me Daryl's script in the first place. That was his way of combating PTSD. He would wake up screaming at night sometimes to really know what goes on inside somebody's head while they're in it. I mean, it, it's, it's difficult to comprehend. And for me, that, that was one way of him putting down on paper his emotions of what he felt about the whole experience. Because it was definitely something that's, that's, that marked him for life. In the first episode of this podcast, I told you that I couldn't share Mustang Zero One with you at that point. That's because Mustang Zero One... It is what drew me to this project, but it is not Daryl's best play. In fact, of all Daryl's scripts that I've read, Mustang Zero One is probably the hardest script to follow. The opening scene takes place in the operations room at the radar site of the Air Force Base where Daryl worked during the war, in Udorn, Thailand. And from the very beginning, the action is almost impossible to follow. Every time I read the opening scene, every time I come back to Mustang Zero One, I just can't follow what's happening and why Daryl would write something so hard to understand. So, I asked Janet. He would, he, you know, he would talk about it in terms of it was just something that he had to, he had to do. He had to write this play. 
um, he never said, this is a processing of my time there. But all I had to do was read a first draft of it. And even then, you know, you've been in therapy. I've been in therapy. A lot of times, it's initially, it's that kind of just getting everything out on the table sort of thing. And this opening scene, it feels like Daryl getting everything out on the table. I think it has to do with the experience of that control room. The experience of that job in that place was out of control. If you've had an experience that was imbalancing and you want an audience to be able to um, experience that imbalance, then you're going to write it in the way you experienced it. It feels like Daryl was processing his trauma through Mustang Zero One. That's what the opening scene feels like to me. As we've discussed it, the feelings were too raw to make it an effective piece of theater right out of the box. I agree with Janet. It's not Daryl's best play, but I do think it might be the best play to examine in order to learn about Daryl, especially to learn how the war impacted him. He wrote it in the way that he lived in that, um, you know, and particularly that, the, like that opening scene where everything is just going, going off in all directions. Um, he lived that every day. But Janet thinks the opening scene could be salvaged. Smooth out some of the technical language, smooth out some of the informational pieces so that people are not so lost that they walk out the door. And that, my dear podcast audience, is exactly what we're going to try to do. We're going to dive into Mustang Zero One, but I'm not going to throw you off the deep end. I'm going to guide you through it, give you the context and the information you need to learn from it. It's been a long time coming, but this is our first foray into Mustang Zero One excerpts from Daryl Allen's play, adapted for radio by me, with editorial support from Janet Allen and Dan Wiley. Mustang Zero One is set in the operations room at a radar site. I asked David, Daryl's brother-in-law, the former Marine, to explain what that means. Operations room sounds a little scary, but David used a term you might be more familiar with. I'll call it an air traffic control center. Just like you'd envision at a regular airport. They have rows of consoles that contain the various radar equipment. The guys would sit and watch the radar scopes, track the planes, make sure everything was flowing correctly. The, the main purpose of these sites was to make, to make sense out of complete chaos. When you have 150 aircraft in the very same airspace, think of the most crowded freeway you've ever seen, and then have those cars moving at 400 miles an hour. And you've got to get them all into the same area, taking the same exits, and you've got to do it in a controlled fashion, because if you don't, they're all going to run into each other. And this is what we're looking at in the first scene of Mustang Zero One. Mustang Zero One. The operations room of the radar site at Udorn Air Force Base, Thailand, takes up the center portion of the stage. The operations board looms up menacingly center front, so most of the audience has to look through the board into the dark room. The main board shows the outline maps of northern Thailand, Laos, and part of North Vietnam. The men seated at the scopes reflect a hint of green from their faces. The dark room overpowers the set and has an ominous feel about it. It's like a gigantic dark womb. 
While the audience is being seated, two board techs are running the first part of a mission. The two techs are part of the Brigham Bravo crew, and it's Bravo crew's shift, their turn to work the operations room. They depict on the map board the fighters and other flights taking off as they continue north and go into orbit over Laos. About 10 minutes before the performance starts, the fighters are shown entering North Vietnam, with the listings stopping at the edge of the map board. Act 1, Scene 1. God, Sarge. I hate it when they're in there. This is Captain Robert McCarthy, the senior director of the Brigham Bravo crew. It's the shit, sir. And that's Master Sergeant Clark, a.k.a. Sarge. He's the crew chief. There's supposed to be 18 more crew members on stage in this scene. Board technicians, radar scope controllers, weapons directors, and more. But I've decided to simplify it a little. So today, you'll be hearing from... Captain Bob Fields, back row coordinator, Brigham Bravo crew. Captain Art Walker, weapons director, Brigham Bravo crew. And Captain Russ Burns, weapons controller, Brigham Bravo crew. And these members of the Brigham Bravo crew will be watching the radar scopes and communicating with the aircraft to help bring them in safely. You're going to hear the crew members talking to the aircraft over the radio, like this. Understand Crown has boxcar. And then relaying the information to Robert, the senior director, like this. Sir, Crown has boxcars. We're in for it. Keep the fuel states current. Roger. Fuck, boxcars! Christ! Listen up! Boxcars, the SAMs are flying. We're in for it. Keep those states up. Get them now. SAMs are surface-to-air missiles the North Vietnamese Army used to shoot down American aircraft. These are guided missiles that could lock onto a moving aircraft and blast it straight out of the sky. Roger, Crown. Crown is moving further north. First word on extra tankers, get it to me no matter what. Yes, sir. Tankers are a type of aircraft that could refuel other aircraft (sighs) mid-air. Sarge, there won't be any hell left after a whole year of waiting while they're up north. Each time gets worse. Brigham, senior director? Yes, sir. Yellow 2-1, port to 090-0. Here's where we get into the military jargon. Yellow 2-1 is referring to an aircraft. All the aircraft were assigned names like this. A word, like a type of car or a color, plus two numbers. So names like Yellow 2-1, Wolf 02, and Mustang 01. Okay, back to the action. Yellow 2-1, port to 090. Is everybody happy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Port to 090. 090 is military speak for 90. It's direction, like on a compass. Yellow 21 cell, port to 090. Roger, Colonel, I have trouble. Have to go. What's the matter, Russ? God damn it, Robert, they won't turn. I keep telling them they won't follow. Calm down and order them to turn once more. Give me your headset. Yellow 21, turn port to 090 now. Goddamn son of a bitches. Key for me. Yellow 2-1, this is Brigham 2-6, Senior Director. I order you port to 090 now. Roger, understand, turning port to 090. Yellow 2-1, you will immediately follow all orders given by my director at all times, or I'll get you on the ground. God, Robert, thanks. Let me know if there's any more trouble. You bet. Mayday. Someone's hit bad. Who? Don't know. Can't read. Here it comes. Let all your tankers know. Here it comes. This is when the action really gets going, and the scene becomes absolute chaos. As the fighter planes return from North Vietnam, the crew at Udorn works to make sure they can all make it back safe. And it reveals one of the hardest parts of Daryl's job in Thailand, figuring out what to do with damaged aircraft who are trying to fly back to safety. 
Through the chaos of the next scene, four aircraft radio in with reports of damage. The first fighter is Pontiac 03. Understand Pontiac 03 coming into Yudorn. Pontiac 03, Mayday, coming into here. Contact blue chip and approach. Did you hear, Art? Pontiac 03? Yes, sir. Stand by, baby. You'll probably wind up with him. Next, a radio call from Mustang 01. Mustang 01, understand Mayday coming into Yudorn. Mustang 01, hit by anti-aircraft fire. How bad? Routine, coming into here. Third up, another Mayday from a badly damaged aircraft. It's Wolf 03, he's in bad shape. Wounded. Screaming most of the time, coming into here. Wolf 03, you're mine, baby. You stay with me. Finally, Ford 02, another badly damaged fighter. And the pilot is in rough shape. Ford 02, calm down. Calm down. We have Ford 02, sounds bad. He's the backseat pilot. The front seat pilot's probably dead. This is the hard part of Daryl's job in Thailand, deciding who gets to land first. If you land one of the damaged aircraft first, but the craft ends up crashing or exploding and blocking the runway, you can't land your other fighters. You're putting everyone at risk. But if you hold off on landing the damaged aircraft, you might be condemning that pilot to death. In that moment, it was the senior director's job, Daryl's job, to decide who lived and who died. Mustang 01 in first. Then Pontiac, then Wolf. Ford will be last. Ford's really scared. Last. Turn him and snake him in last. Roger. Ford 02. Starboard to 240 degrees, then back port to 190. You'll hold you during 12 o'clock at 80 miles. We have three other emergencies in ahead of you. That's Mustang 01. That's Pontiac 03. You're in after them. That's Ford 02. Robert! Ford's gone bonkers. He won't turn. Russ, Snake Wolf 03 back. You'll bring him in last instead. God damn it, Wolf! We'll fall out of the fucking sky! Turn him! Jesus Christ, are you trying to kill him? Ford 02 is a new back seat. Front seat's dead. You understand? Ford is cracking worse. He can't be! Turn, Wolf, now! Yes, sir. Wolf 03, make a port turn to 100, then back to 190 heading. We'll have you doing 190 at 80 miles. I know, Wolf. Ford 02 is worse than you. Turn port now. I know. Wolf, but make a port turn now. Get those son of a bitches in I'm here. I'm trying, goddammit, I'm trying. But, hard as they try, decisions have consequences. Wolf 03, this is Brigham. Wolf 03, this is Brigham. Do you read? Wolf 03, this is Brigham. Come in! Captain, lost contact with Wolf 03. Where? 025 degrees and 75 miles from here. Wolf 03, this is Brigham. Come in! Sergeant Clark to blue chip and invert Wolf 03. Lost contact. Probably down. 025 degrees from Udorn, 75 miles. Bob, Crown! Yes, sir. I've told them already. Heads up, everyone. There's bound to be a rest cap. Christ. He's right in the middle of Laos. Are you okay, Russ? He was hurt and screaming. He would have made it in. You made me turn up. I know, Russ. If he's dead, you've killed him as much as the guys who shot him. You couldn't let him head straight in. I could have brought him in, God damn it! Russ, sit down. Take your tankers and flights back from Art. Go to hell. We have a rest cap to run. Do you want to leave him on the fucking ground with the path at Lao all around him? Fuck you! Russ, sit down and take your flights back. Sit. Down! Captain, that's an order. Send Russ back his flights? 316.5. Sure, Robert. Are we making it? We're getting there. 
What a fucking shitty day. Just another quiet day at Brigham, sir. We're going to stop there for now. We can't ever truly understand what Daryl went through in Vietnam, but I see Daryl in this scene. I see a man who did everything he could to help the people around him stay safe, to guide them home. He wanted to protect them. I've often wondered where Daryl's protective instincts came from, the protection he had in every major relationship in his life. I gave Janet a call to ask her about this. It's making me think, like, you know, about sort of the Daryl that I first encountered in the letters with Dan and then kind of in talking with you, this Mm -hmm. man who's, like, very um, protective um, and, like, he sort of brought people into his orbit and under under his wing yeah. and it kind of makes sense like the word that comes to mind is compensation but i don't like he was kind of compensating for the things that he'd been through and trying to protect people yeah yeah if you notice the the important the important um mates in his life were all significantly younger than he he wanted to empower us to go as far as we wanted to go In the operations room, oftentimes, Daryl couldn't always be in control. He couldn't always protect the Russes from the pain of having a pilot go down in the Laotian jungle. But back in the United States after the war, Daryl could protect people. He could protect Janet and Dan and Jonathan. For Daryl, love was about protection. And I wonder how much of that was born of his experience in Thailand. I think... The operations room was a part of that, but there's another side to Daryl's trauma from the Vietnam War. In the first scene of the play, you heard about the four damaged aircraft that Robert tried to land safely, and how Wolf 03 didn't make it back. But this play isn't about Wolf 03. It's about one of the damaged aircraft that did manage to land safely. Mustang 01. In the next episode, we meet the pilot of that aircraft. Dance with me. Paul, don't get that look. Chris has duty tonight until two. Come on. My God, Paul. Shh, come on. I've never danced with a man before. Neither have I. Next time on Resurrection, Mustang Zero One, the love story. birthday 28 years old nice to meet you this is the real you feels like a brick wall. resurrection is a team effort if you want to help support us please rate and review us it helps us so so much or consider becoming a monthly supporter on patreon the link is in the show notes or you can visit patreon.com slash resurrection podcast that's one s double r Matthew Rogers is our sound editor and wrote all the original music you heard except for the acoustic guitar and drumline, which was written by Ethan Soil. The sound design and mixing for the radio play of Mustang Zero One was by Corey Marie Green of Transducer Audio. Corey is incredible, and you should check them out at transducer-audio.com. The cast of Mustang Zero One is 
Davide Chietzeze as Robert McCarthy, Adam Capriolo as Paul, Rebecca Gibeon as Julie, Matt Leca as Sergeant Clark, David Udon as Russ Burns, Vlad Alexis as Bob Fields, and Renee Hodgins as Art Walker. Davide Chietzeze is also the voice of Daryl's letters and scripts. Hannah Song is our executive producer. Our outro track is called Easy to Love, written for us by Clara Jones. Matthew Cariatsumeri is the platonic love of my life and my co-producer. Resurrection is researched, written, and hosted by me, Dane Stewart. The creation of this podcast was made possible thanks to the financial support of the Conseil des Arts de Montréal, the Conseil des Arts de l'Est Québec, and the Canada Council for the Arts. Thanks for listening. See you next time. 